Well, good morning. I feel like that was halfway. Maybe they love me a little bit more than you, but <laughs> not quite as much, but that's good. So if we haven't met yet, my name is Heather. I get to lead the prayer team that meets before the gatherings here on Sunday mornings. I am wife to the bearded one I'm sitting right here. See, they definitely love you more. <laughs> He's on staff here. He preaches from time to time. And I am mom to the cutest and craziest member of the family. Her name is Chloe. She's two years old, and she has a job here, too. She likes to turn on the candles when we get here in the mornings. You know, she's super excited about it because she shouts, I did it, after she's done. And so, really, all of that to say, if you happen to find yourself here early and you think, I'll just turn on these candles for everyone, don't. <laughs> She's likely a Neeson. She will find you. <laughs> so we are wrapping up our series on the Lord's Prayer, where we are looking at the characteristics of God found in the prayer, and then how those characteristics influence the way that we pray. I will test your memories for a second. Three weeks ago, Kristen talked to us about how the Father's guidance shapes our prayer. And so we are actually going to be jumping back, and we're going to be talking about guidance too, but this time through the lens of the Good Shepherd. So before we get started, let's go ahead and read through that Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us the food we need today. Forgive us what we have done wrong, as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. And do not lead us into hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. For kingship, power, and glory are yours forever. Amen. So you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 10. It's John 10, and as you do that, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all of the ways that you have already met with us this morning. And thank you for the ways that I know that you will continue to do that. I just pray that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears to hear from you. I pray that um, that your word would go out and accomplish the purpose that you have for it, every purpose that you have for it. And that's by the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd rather depend on myself than others. I often do my own thing. Winning is everything. It is important that I do my job better than others. If a coworker gets a prize, I would feel proud. To me, pleasure is spending time with others. It is my duty to take care of my family even when I have to sacrifice what I want. It is important to me that I respect the decisions made by my groups. So these are eight statements 
taken from the 16-item culture orientation scale. The scale is used to help measure the degree to which a person or a society identifies as more independent or more interdependent. The scale goes by another name as well. It is called the individualism and collectivism scale. Now, we tend to be really familiar with this idea of individualism. This is how our culture in the West is oriented for the most part. A quick definition for this is the habit or principle of being independent and self-reliant. Collectivism, on the other hand, is defined as the practice or principle of giving a group priority over each individual in it. So think Disney movies for a second. If you have a young child, you probably would rather not, but that's okay. <laughs> so oftentimes, the story is of an individualist child in a collectivist family. And so that's where the tension comes from. So by the end of the movie, the individualist is celebrated as a hero and the whole culture changes. Moana is a really great example of this. Moana embarks on an adventure following the call of the ocean, leaving behind her entire family that doesn't believe in straying from life together on the island. So think back to those statements from the scale for a second. It is important to me that I respect the decisions made by my groups. Moana couldn't do that, but in the end, she's celebrated for it and the whole culture shifts. We love stories like that, especially the ones where the songs get stuck in your head for days. <laughs> but neither individualism nor collectivism are without their flaws. C.S. Lewis, when talking about church membership, said that individualism makes membership impossible because it leads to self-sufficient, self-centered confidence that regards other people as largely irrelevant. Okay. But then of collectivism, he said that it undermines membership by leading to a callous insensitivity to the unique needs and gifts people carry. He says of collectivism that it is an outrage upon human nature. So like most things, the extremes aren't the best places to be, and this certainly isn't a message about collectivism being any better than individualism or the other way around. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City who speaks a lot about culture, says that if we are not deliberately thinking about our culture and our context, we will be conformed to it without ever knowing. And so I want us to think deliberately this morning to think about how Jesus taught in a primarily collectivist culture and how you and I, in our cultural moment, tend to approach the Bible with individualistic eyes and individualistic ears. And so we are going to look at one passage in two different ways. First, we will look collectivist, then we will go individualist. It is John chapter 10, and it's verses 1 to 16.
It says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold, rather than going through the gate, must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep keep, not the sheep keeper, the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me, just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. So I want to talk first about what's happening behind the passage. So that story that Jesus tells is at the beginning of chapter 10, but in chapter 9, we read of Jesus, a blind man, and the Pharisees. Jesus heals the blind man on the Sabbath, which is considered to be work, and it shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. And so they rebuke Jesus, the Pharisees rebuke Jesus, completely unfazed by this blind man's miraculous healing. They weren't amazed. They weren't impressed, unless they were secretly. They were just straight up furious that their teachings and authority were being undermined. And so as the Pharisees and healed man are arguing, the man makes this statement in verse 32 of chapter 9. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. Infuriated, the Pharisees throw this man out of the synagogue. Now earlier in the chapter, the parents of the man born blind were questioned by the Pharisees as well, but they were too afraid to answer. Verse 22 says that it was because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. Now there's this one Greek word used for the phrase expelled from the synagogue, 
It is apasinagogas. <laughs> Whoa. So <laughs> just as a side note, if anybody is interested in learning Greek, you just add more syllables than there ever should be and then put os at the end and you're good. So the Journal for the Study of the New Testament published a research article on that one word, and the article is called To Be an Out of the Synagoguer. So listen to the difference between those two. You are expelled from the synagogue. You are an out of the synagoguer. Being expelled from the synagogue at that time was a pretty terrible thing. As individualists, though, we tend to think about it in terms of proximity, so this is a place that you're not allowed to go anymore. The collectivist, though, knows that this is a statement more about identity. This is about who you are and who you're not. Of this word, the article states that it was clearly a word which must have been coined and used by a Greek-speaking synagogue community for people with a negative relationship to the group. They never called Moana that. She wasn't an off of the islander. But this is a collectivist culture. To be someone who has a negative relationship with the most important group for a Jewish family was a very big deal. Not to mention, this group was their way to get to God. The Pharisees were well aware of this, so they used it to incite fear and force conformity. The yoke was heavy, but these people who would have a negative relationship with the group, these out of the synagoguers, they would be cut off from their family, they would be cut off from community, from their livelihood, and cut off, they believed, from God. To be an out of the synagoguer, is to be like a sheep without a shepherd. And what happens to actual sheep without a shepherd? They become lost, they become hungry and thirsty, and they become extremely vulnerable. This is really bad news. But in the middle of this drama, Jesus steps in and it seems to us like he changes the conversation so what was once all about physical healing becomes even more significant when Jesus reveals something that's critically important about who he is. That even for the out of the synagoguer, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd that Israel has been waiting for. It wasn't the Pharisees. His sheep hear his voice and recognize it, and they run from the strangers who in this story are the Pharisees. So let's look back in our passage, chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. The sheep hear his voice, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. It is this out of the synagogue, in an extreme turn of events, who has direct access to the good shepherd. He wasn't without a shepherd after all. Really bad news just turned into really good news. And there's a relief here that we don't quite understand as much as the Jewish audience of Jesus would have. 
And I believe that that is because they behaved more naturally like a flock that wanted a shepherd. So those who would follow Jesus could identify as part of a new flock. They weren't losing anything. It's hard for us, though, as individualists, to wrap our minds around how good this news really is. Remember when Keller said, if we're not deliberately thinking about our culture and our context, we will be conformed to it without ever knowing. We are influenced every day by the culture around us to think as individualists. If our shepherd, if we accept having one at all, is going to lead us to water, we wonder, can I at least have my own unique pond with the tree over there on the left? Because I don't really like it on the right. And actually the way, I'd like, a, I'd like a privacy fence because the way you're lapping up your water over there is a little bit extra. And come to think of it, if you could just tell me how to get there and point me in the right direction, I can just get there on my own. Thank you. Also, I hope there's a Starbucks on the way. So let's pause for a second. We are right in the middle of a sermon that is supposed to be about prayer and guidance, and we are talking a lot about sheep and shepherds and guidance, and here's why. So when we ask for guidance, direction, or a word from God, essentially we are asking to hear him. And the context in which Jesus describes hearing his voice is in a story about shepherds and sheep. A prayer for guidance really is a prayer for a shepherd. So there's this thing that Chloe does when she's in a mood, which is often. Um, so when she wants Holden, she will put her arms up in the air, but then when he goes to reach for her, she will take those arms and just push him away. And then she'll put her arms back up He'll go to reach for her again. She pushes him away. And then she puts him back up, and finally she lets him pick her up, hold her. Holden loves being confused on a daily basis. <laughs> this is what it's like for us to ask for guidance. Because a prayer for guidance is a prayer for a shepherd, and we are in the midst of a culture that doesn't want to be shepherded. So we put our arms up, asking for our shepherd, but once he comes close, we have a tendency to push him away. The reality of our cultural moment is that we're in a spiritual territory of shepherd rejection. And you better believe that that influences the way that we pray, more specifically, the way that we pray for guidance. In his book called Hearing God, Dallas Willard says, our failure to hear his voice when we want to is due to the fact that we do not, in general, want to hear it. We want it only when we think we need it. Our failure to hear his voice when we want to is due to the fact that we do not, in general, want to hear it. That we want it only when we think we need it. I'll be honest with you, when I was writing this sermon, I had a hard time connecting with the story. My brain figured it out before my heart did, 
And even when I was writing about a good shepherd, I was feeling a bit disconnected from mine. So I realized that I grew up in a family that fits the individualist profile. We were very small, relatively no close extended family members. We had few friends and outside of when I got older and started doing things on my own, we really weren't part of any groups or any community. And what I saw was that it is okay to do everything on your own. Flocks weren't that important and shepherds never got a passing thought. And this was a well-meaning but inaccurate, I believe, phrase that I've heard all my life, and that is, be a leader, not a follower. I get, I think, what that is trying to say, but the problem is that you can't lead until you follow, and you can't be your own shepherd, which really is the message of that. Individualism runs deep. When we think that what we want is just some guidance, that's just a taste of what we truly need. What we need is a shepherd, and don't miss the good news. We have one. I wonder if maybe we don't want to hear God's voice when we don't think we need it, partially because we don't want to practice being shepherded. Jesus is the good shepherd and he's the good shepherd always. And when we ask for guidance, we are asking for a shepherd, and we have to accept all that a shepherd is. So first, let's look at what a shepherd does from our passage. First, a shepherd leads to life-giving places of provision. These places give food and water and rest. Yes, please, we love that. Chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Second, a shepherd protects and cares for the sheep's daily needs. Sheep need protected from predators. They need any wounds cared for. They need sheared. Verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. And third, a shepherd is intimately close. He knows his own sheep. They know him. He calls them by name. Verses 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And just as a side note, if you're in the room and you're not a Christian, I just want you to hear what Jesus is like. So if we cut through the individualism and we cut through all of the cultural stuff and we cut through the hypocrisy, let's be honest, what we find is a good shepherd. Now these ways of shepherding sound wonderful, but we're asking for a shepherd in a culture that doesn't want to be shepherded. And if we're honest, we're asking for a shepherd when we don't want to be shepherded, at least not all the time. What did Dallas Willard say? Only when we think we need it. So the question this morning is how does this affect the way that we pray? Here are a few things I think might be happening. 
First, because we're living in a culture that doesn't want shepherded, we might be experiencing difficulty. Praying for guidance might feel more difficult than we feel like it should. And so we recognize that individualism is a stronghold in our culture, and we know that the enemy doesn't want strongholds to be broken, even if just in our own lives. And so when you pray, you might notice that you don't have as much energy as you thought you should, or a distraction begs for your attention, or you start to question if you have enough faith. If you're like me, these can be shame-producing. It shouldn't be this hard. Um, now, there's a lot more reasons why we can experience those things. But could it be that we experience just some opposition because we are in a culture that is opposed to being shepherded? Second, if we are opposed to being shepherded, we might be missing out on experiencing the protection and care that shepherds give. Sometimes we like to pick and choose our levels of protection. We want protection from the big thieves and robbers, to use the language Jesus used, but maybe not from like those little daily things that a shepherd cares just as much about, like the lie we told at work to cover up a mistake, or that thing that we weren't supposed to tell anyone that we really, really want to tell someone about. So finally, if we are opposed to being shepherded, we may experience a barrier to intimacy with God. When we ask for guidance, we are asking for a shepherd who is close and calls us by name, but our individualism has us playing this back and forth game with Jesus, keeping our good shepherd at arm's length. That one is part of my story. This idea that I should be able to do everything on my own, mixed in with a history of not having very many healthy, close relationships, had me thinking that I was asking for my shepherd to come close, not realizing that as he did, I was actually ready to stop him. So what do we do now? How do we pray for guidance in light of our varying degrees of shepherd rejection? How do we ask when we need a new job, when we need wisdom with a hard relationship, or when we need rest and we just aren't sure how to get it? So the first thing that we can do is we can confess and repent of the ways that we reject shepherding. Be as specific as you can be. Maybe it was one of the three that we just talked about. Maybe it was something totally different. Maybe this whole time you haven't thought much about these qualities of a shepherd because you don't believe that you can hear his voice anyways. You might say something like, Jesus, as I go to prayer, I confess that intimacy scares me. And while I want your protection, I don't know that I want you to be close enough to protect me. I repent of this. Help me to allow myself to be near to you. Imagery goes a long way as well. One of the ways that we can practice being shepherd, shepherded is to just imagine ourselves being shepherded. You sit and pray and you think of the ways that Jesus longs to shepherd you, and then you picture yourself being shepherded in that way. If you have to go full sheep imagery, do that. It's fine. It's not weird. <laughs> it might be weird, but it's okay. 
So something that I've begun to put into practice is imagery journaling. I promise you, this is new for me. I have never been the type of person to keep a journal. I was never any good at it. I didn't keep up with it, all of those things. But when there's a truth about God that I know with my head and not so much with my heart, I have been imagining what the truth would look like and writing it out. And it's just been pretty helpful for me. And let me just say, as a quick side note, that we all have this capacity to change our minds with imagery. And if right now you're wondering if that's true, my question is, what has worry done to you? Worry is imagery. It's putting together pictures of really terrible things for our mind to watch and react to. So we all know that we have a skill here. Having Jesus as our good shepherd is really, really good news. It means that guidance isn't something that we want from him, but he doesn't want to give us. He longs to lead and protect and care for and be close to us. So I'd like to read Psalm 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. I will leave you with a quote by Max Licato. Want to change your life? Begin by saying, the Lord is my shepherd.